Therefore What is a weekly podcast that breaks down the news while breaking down barriers, challenges you in the status quo, explores timely topics and timeless principles, and leaves you confident to face what's next. I'm Boyd Matheson, opinion editor for the Deseret News, and this is Therefore What. We're very pleased to be joined today by Doris Kearns Goodwin, uh, one of my favorite historians, uh, one of the, the most extraordinary light, uh, writers in our country, uh, who not only focuses on the importance of history, but uh, the thing that I love is the your ability to get it to the principle. Uh, and what does that really mean for us in the world today? So, Doris, thanks for joining us. Oh, I'm very glad to be with you, absolutely. Uh, it, it's wonderful to have you here as part of the Sutherland Institute 25th uh, Anniversary Gala, uh, also an institution that's really focused on principles. Uh, and focus, so it's it's very fitting that you're you're here today. Uh, I'm excited to talk to you about a, a couple of things uh, as we uh, get rolling today. Uh, and the first is, you know, we often throw out the kind of the trite old expression, you know, those who fail to learn the lessons of history are doomed to repeat them. Uh, it seems today a lot of people are just ignoring those. Uh, so I wanted to ask you two questions. One, what what are some of the lessons from history that you worry that we're not remembering or not applying today? You know, I think one of the most important things to remember from history to make us feel calmer and get a sense of perspective on the turbulent times we're living in right yeah. now is that America has been through far more difficult times before. I mean, just imagine what it was like for Abraham Lincoln coming into office when the country is split in two and more than 600,000 people are going to die. He wasn't even sure he could live through those first months in office. Or think of Franklin Roosevelt coming in when the Great Depression was at its height, or the early days of World War II when it was unclear that we could ever match the military might of the Nazis. And yet somehow this democracy and the people pulled together. And I think if we remember that now, it will make people feel that we'll get through these turbulent times right now as we have before. That's what history does. It yeah. gives you perspective and solace. Yeah. So in addition to that uh, perspective, I think that's so true. We, we do need to remember that uh, in times like this, there's, there's always been times like this. Uh, so we do come together. What are some of the other important lessons from history that we should be really thinking about today? Well, you know, when you think about the difficulties that we found ourselves in in earlier times of history, it often had to do with that kind of partisan divide that we're feeling right now. You know, obviously the 1850s, I was on a plane one day and a woman said to me, an older woman, she said, tell me that things have been worse. So I started telling her about, this is just gonna contradict almost what I just said. I started telling her about the 1850s and how they had such partisan newspapers that you only read what you believed in. So if you're in the Stephen Douglas debates with Lincoln and you're reading the Republican newspaper, you're hearing that he was so great that he was carried out on the arms of his supporters. If you're in the Democratic newspaper reading it, you're hearing that he was so terribly fell on the floor and they had to drag, <laughs> drag him out. out. So there's a sense in which I think one lesson of history is to learn that that was not good, that people were seeing different facts from the North and the South, from the Republicans and the Democrats, as well as different opinions, and it led to an ever-escalating division in the country, which of course ended in the Civil War. So that's when I told the woman that that was the 1850s, was like, well, that didn't end well. Did yeah. <laughs> but we have got an unusual time right now, which we've been leading up to, where the press is much more divided, people are only reading what they want to read. Yeah. Before, you at least had three television networks which had the facts, the same, mm -hmm. even if opinions were different, or collective radio, or Lincoln giving a speech, you know, so it, it's, it's a different time right now, and I think we should just know we've got to figure out how as a country to have common interests. The other thing I worry about that we need to remember from history is that Teddy Roosevelt used to warn that the rock of democracy would founder 
if people started seeing themselves as the other mm. from different sections, regions, or religions, yeah. rather than as common American citizens, and you needed that bond. And I think that bond we need to strengthen today. Uh, I think that's that's such an important point. Uh, I, I want to take you now from, from being the historian to now I'm going to turn you into the futurist. <laughs> so I want you to project forward in history. Uh, what are some of the lessons from our day, uh, from here in 2019, that you think future generations are going to be really focused on? We better learn that lesson from 2019. Well, I think people will look back at our time and just wonder how it got so intense. I mean, I read an article not long ago that said that it used to be that people worried more about whether their child would marry outside their religion, but now they're worrying more if they'll marry outside their party. And it just, it, it, there's so much more that brings us together. And parties don't even have the power that they once had. They can't yeah. nominate the candidates. They don't raise the money in the same way they did. They don't have the publicity they did. And yet people's identity with their party has become so intense. And and parties are, are a good thing. We need them in our country. But it's what Washington was worried about. It's what people have worried about because they can become factions. And I think people looking back will see it's it's not just now. It's been building up for these last decades. And there was something, I think, about the fact that in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, even the 80s, the majority of senators and congressmen had been in either World War II or the Korean War, which meant they'd had a common purpose that went beyond their their own divisions. And somehow we just need to instill that sense. Hopefully it doesn't have to be a war that brings us that way. I have a big belief in national service. I think it would be a way to make young people go from the country to the city and vice versa, just as obviously the Mormons do with their missions. I think it's a great thing to just get outside of where you live and see the way other people live, because right now we're just in our silos. Everyone's in a bubble. And I think when people look back to this, they'll see that bubble, and hopefully they'll see that we figured out ways to soften it. Yeah, no, that's great. Uh, in your latest work, you, you talk about the, the four presidents, Lincoln, Roosevelt, Roosevelt, and Johnson, uh, some very different, very diverse backgrounds and family experience and education. Uh, and yet there was one uh, of the common threads that you drew was that they all had this interesting connection to story and this ability to tell the story. Uh, what did you learn about that? Yeah, I think communication, obviously, between a leader and his people or the organization is a central ability to mobilize them to a common goal. And they all understood that more important than just communicating facts or figures or even just ideology was to tell people a story. For example, when Lincoln was trying to talk about slavery, his whole storytelling would be, this is where it came from. You talk about it historically. Here's where we are now. Here's where we need to go as a nation. And people asked him, why do you tell so many stories? He said, because people remember stories better than facts and figures. And if you look at any of Roosevelt's FDR's fireside chats, they would always tell a story at the first one he gave when there was a banking crisis and he had actually had to call a bank holiday to close all the banks. Right. So what does he do? He tells people who've taken their money out of the banks and they've got it under their mattress that he's now got some emergency legislation that he's passed will shore up the weaker banks. But he said, when you put money in a bank, it doesn't just sit there. That's why they don't have it when you start drawing it out. Right. It goes to mortgages and loans to make the economy go around. So I promise you now that because of this federal law that was passed, you'll be better off taking your money back than keeping it under your mattress. So the next day after the banking holiday of a week was over, they were worried. What if they came in now and tried to take out even more? They were long lines. They panicked, but they were actually bringing their money back in satchels. So when you can tell a story that people understand, why did this happen and why are they safe now? then it's a story that can, can it motivate people. We're hardwired for stories. Think yeah. about the fact that 
In the old days, people before the written word would sit around a fire and one generation would talk to the other right. and tell what had happened. That's wisdom that's passed down over yeah. time. Yeah, for sure. And that's, that's uh, that kitchen table conversation or fireside chat. Uh, I do think it, it. I've always found it interesting that uh, after November or excuse me, December seventh, Pearl Harbor, uh, that it was actually Eleanor Roosevelt that was the first to speak to the nation. She had her weekly radio address, and uh, I actually think her address was, might have been a little better than the than the president's. Well, probably in those times, you know, so many people will look at what you're saying when he goes to the joint session of Congress right after Pearl Harbor, yeah. where she can speak from the heart in a certain sense. But the interesting thing about the storytelling that they all had in common is they each had to master the technology of their time so that Lincoln luckily had a gift for language and his speeches would be printed in full in the newspapers. Right. When Teddy comes along, it's the national headlines. New National newspapers have been born. So his ability to say things in very quick order, the square yeah. deal for the rich right. and the poor was a story really. Yeah. And then FDR has his, he's talking to individuals. There's a feeling that people have that he's talking directly to them on the radio. Um, Saul Bellow said you could go down the street on a hot Chicago night when one of his fireside chats was on the air, and you could watch people looking in their kitchen radio or their living room radio and hear his voice coming out. And you could keep walking and not miss a word of what he said because it was a collective experience. And then, obviously, when JFK and Ronald Reagan came along, they mastered the art of talking on television for three television networks. So it depends on the technology, but underneath it all is telling people a story that will make them understand what's happening and what they need to do. In your uh, writing about Lyndon Johnson, uh, you talk about uh, his work as the head of the National Youth Administration. Uh, and you quoted one of the staffers who said that, that they all had bought into this story, this idea, this vision. Uh, tell me just a little bit about that, because I think it really shows how Lyndon Johnson, one, loved working with the young people, but learned how to tell a story to them as well as to their parents. It made the people who were working for him, and they worked under hard conditions with LBJ, because yeah. he'd be there like at six in the morning, he'd stay there till midnight. If you left, he'd be wondering, where are you going? Come back here. But they stayed with it because they knew that through the National Youth Administration, a whole generation of young people that would have had no jobs, no hope, no future, were given work to do. And they believed in it. And they saw these jobs being created out of nothing all of a sudden. There's jobs in highways. There's jobs. And that they were being learn, learning skills, which they could bring to them. And when a leader can make you feel that you've got something that's making a difference in people's lives, it really helps motivation. It gives you a sense of purpose. Yeah. Do you feel like we're losing that sense of story in the country? Are the American people in all of the, uh, just the, the headline and the clickbait kinds of things, or are we losing that important essence of story? You know, I do worry about that because stories take a while to unwind. You know, as Lincoln said, they have a beginning, middle, and an end. So it's not going to be captured in a short email or a tweet. It really takes um, people to be part of the process of hearing the story. And everything is so shortened right now. Breaking news is happening before you've even absorbed a speech that a president might have given. You've got the pundits who are tearing Doing apart analysts, two or yeah. three lines from it. You know, when JFK gave his Cuban Missile Crisis speech, they went immediately back to the normal programming. So there wasn't going to be five people, even sometimes maybe including myself, saying, well, he said this, and this right. wasn't the right thing to say. So I think, yes, I do worry that it's so divide it up right now. And there's such a premium on immediate responses rather than thoughtful responses. Yeah. And people are demanded to speak right away and they speak without thinking. Right. And then a story is lost because that takes time. Yeah. That, uh, that instant 
certainty, I think, is uh, a big trial for the time. And it does prevent us from getting both to the story and, I think, to the history, to the facts of it. Right, exactly. Yeah. So as you as you look at these uh, great figures that you've studied and, and written about over the years, clearly there was something going on in the learning and in the homes uh, in, the, in America that allowed over that first 100 or 150 years, uh, people were learning history and it was producing more great. It was producing Lincoln and Roosevelt and Johnson and so many others. What are we... What are we missing today? It seems like we're we're not seeing that kind of leadership. Is it a disconnection from history? Yeah, you know, it used to be, I think, that people who were the leaders felt connected to the ones in the past. I mean, Lyndon Johnson's hero was FDR. FDR's hero was Teddy Roosevelt. Teddy's hero was Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln's was George Washington. But more importantly, I think, people were reading history. They were proud of their country. I mean, there was a time when Lincoln gave a talk when he was a young man where he urged that it was a very turbulent time and the rule of law was being violated. And he said, we have to remember the ideals of the revolution. That generation is passing. So mothers should be reading to their children the revolution and its ideals. And you did have a feeling, I mean, even for me, as, as, as old as I am now, civics was a huge part of what we learned when we were in school. And you'd sing the songs and you'd learn the, the government and and it was a part of the importance. And you sometimes you see in high schools, they're cutting American history down to one year rather than two, you know, or maybe half a year here. And I think it's so important in this country to understand our own ideals, the fact that we were the only country founded on an ideal, and we may not reach those ideals. And, and we can look critically at why we're not there, but you have to also applaud where we've come and where we started. Yeah, that, that is so important. And I, th- I think it was Adams that uh, said that the real revolution began uh, around the tables and around the fireplaces in the homes as they were talking about history and talking about these, these principles and values. Absolutely. I mean, it began, I think it was said in the hearts and minds of the people before the first shot was fired. That first shot fired on Monument Street, where I lived in Concord for 45 years, mm-hmm. the old North Bridge. Yeah. And you just every year you see them reenact that battle. And you know that those soldiers have something that they're fighting for. There's a cause, there's a purpose. The colonists really believed that in, in the Declaration of Independence, when it finally gave them that real push to do what they were doing. So tell me, how is your life different uh, because of your commitment to history? You know, I think it means that you you live with different layers of your life all the time. I mean, I feel sometimes when I was working on FDR that I was living back in the 1930s, and then I get catapulted back to the turn of the 20th century with Teddy Roosevelt, and then back to the Civil War. And just like you learn from your parents and your grandparents, you really learn from the struggles and triumphs of the people who went before us. So it allows me when I'm walking down a street to feel like I'm not just here now, I'm connected to the past. And I think it matters a lot to me in part because my parents died when I was young. So to be able to look back at their lives, which I finally did when I wrote Wait Till Next Year about baseball, and make them come alive, just as I try to make these other people come alive by living with them for so long, it just makes you feel broader, I think, as a result of it. You're not just here alone. You're here as a result of your ancestors. And it makes you think about the ideals of the country more than you might otherwise do in, an, in a regular day. What, what do you think it was about uh, Lincoln's upbringing and his learning that enabled him to really embrace what you so eloquently captured in the Team of Rivals? You know, it takes enormous confidence for somebody to surround himself, as he did with his three chief rivals the night he wins the presidency in 1860, and humility to know that he didn't have the experience that he needed. He had only had a single term in Congress and some terms in the state legislature. And his friends said to him, how can you do this? You're going to look like a figurehead. They're all better known than you, better educated, more celebrated. They each want to be president. But he he knew, he said, the country was in peril and that he needed the strongest and most able people around him. So that is an unusual combination. He had the confidence that he would be able to lead them, 
but the humility to know that he had to learn from them. And I think partly because he was a self-learner his whole life. I mean, there was no, he only went to school less than 12 months altogether, so he had to scour the countryside for books. He learned law by himself. He learned how to be a politician. So he could keep learning. His ability to grow, I think, was one of the most essential characteristics. And boy, did he grow. Yeah. <laughs> I, I love the, the, the compare and contrast of, of Lincoln, who said he was a slow learner. He was like steel, and it was really hard to etch it on there. But once it was on, it wasn't coming off. And then you had Roosevelt, who, or no, it was Johnson, who's, who said he was more uh, like a uh, wax coming, receiving right, right. and marble retaining. Yeah, no, it's really interesting. I mean, Lincoln, it is true. I mean, he, he, he did learn slowly, but he never forgot then what was important. So he could, the poetry and the drama. And Teddy Roosevelt, too, he said, the way a leader learns is by reading about human nature through the great acts of prose and poetry. So literature, I think, can transform people from one place to another. And for Lincoln, it was absolutely essential. He could dream of another way of life other than the relentless poverty he was living in. So I, I want to get to this interesting point that I, I, you, you bring out so powerfully in, in the book, and that is this, this idea of ambition uh, and its role. I think it was Lyndon Johnson who said that ambition was a very uncomfortable companion. <laughs> uh, but tell us about the compare and contrast there as it relates to how does ambition propel, and then sometimes how does it prevent great leadership? Yeah, I mean, ambition, which is the drive for success, is essential for anybody, I think, to accomplish anything. It just means simply that perseverance, that will, that desire. And they all had it. But the big difference is, from the start, Lincoln's ambition was to make a difference in people's lives. I mean, he said that even at 23 when he ran for the state legislature the first time. For both Teddy and Franklin, they came from a privileged background. I think their ambition at the beginning was, this will be fun to get into politics. Why not? And then they both had life experiences that made them more propelled toward an ambition toward a greater good rather than just toward themselves. I mean, Teddy had lost lost his wife and his mother on the same day in the same house, went to the Badlands, and moving away from the East became a Westerner in a way. He said he never would have become president if it hadn't been for that experience of being a cowboy and a rancher. But it also made him understand regular people's ways of life by living out there for two years rather than the world he had come from. And Franklin Roosevelt, of course, had the polio, and then that ambition became deeper in him to connect to other people to whom fate had dealt an unkind hand. And Lyndon Johnson, as he said, I mean, he was ambitious from the time he was two. Right. <laughs> and, and then at a certain point, that power which he'd accumulated had been not necessarily toward a purpose, except when he was young, but then he had a massive heart attack when he was in his 40s, and he was so depressed for a few days, and then he suddenly woke up, and he told everybody, shave me, get this hospital going, <laughs> and they said, what had happened? And he said he realized if he died then, he would not um, have accomplished anything to, to really feel proud of. So that's when he went for civil rights, even in the Senate before the presidency. So there's a moment in great people's lives, I think, where that ambition for self becomes an ambition for something larger than yeah. that. We've got just a couple minutes left. I'm going to squeeze in two questions just because I'm going to push the, the envelope here a little. One is a, a question around the turbulent times and, you know, what is the character trait that really drives that? Uh, and I'm going to frame that with a, uh, what did baseball teach you about turbulent times? Because <laughs> <laughs> if I don't get a baseball question in with you, Doris, it doesn't count as an interview. <laughs> well, you know, I think what baseball teaches you is that when you love a team, especially when I loved the Brooklyn Dodgers and the Boston Red Sox. And almost every year, they would almost always win and then they would lose in the end. <laughs> but there was a great camaraderie that we fans felt toward our team because maybe because we were losing so much so that when you won, it was this extraordinary moment. And ever since winning that first time for the Red Sox in particular, I now am happy enough with just if they do well during the season 
and I can, they win more games than they lose, so I feel good about it. I'm not asking that they win the World Series every year, so I'm much healthier about it than I used to be. <laughs> so I think it does teach you that you just have to, when you love something, you follow it. They're going to fail sometimes. They're going to do really well sometimes. And you have to feel a sense of understanding and empathy, the same way I do, hopefully, for my presidents. You know, all of them did things that you wish they hadn't done. All of them disappoint you. But on the whole, the ones I chose were the ones who I really wanted to live with for such a period of time. And you're not judging them from the outside. You're just trying to make them come to life for the people with all their strengths and their weaknesses. And that's the same about a team. They're never going to make you win all the time, but you have to love them anyway. Therefore, what? Final question, as always on this show, is is the therefore what? Uh, as people listen, as people read your books, as they hear you do commentary, what is the, the therefore what? What do you hope people think different? What do you hope they do different as they look at history through this beautiful lens and these powerful words that you've done for a, for a career? I mean, I guess, I guess what you really hope is that they're going to love history. They'll love looking back into the past. And if they can feel connected to the people that you're writing about, so the best compliment I ever get is when they say they didn't want Lincoln to die or they didn't want Teddy to die. So they didn't want to read the end, which means that they have absorbed who this person is. And if you can do that, then you're giving the same thing that I've spent a lifetime doing, a sense of, of perspective and an understanding of the people who came before us. I just recently completed a, mas- a master class in teaching history. <laughs> and so and it was the same question in a way that I was trying to answer in why am I doing this class that you've just asked me. And it is just a hope that if you can get people to care about the characters in one time period, then maybe they'll want to read about another. Maybe they'll want to read one of your colleagues' books about the same time. And it'll just, they, history is something you can have the whole your whole life, whether you've got anything to do with history professionally. And I know so many people that feel that it is their hobby, it's their avocation. And I think that's a great thing if they can do that, because it gives perspective and it, and it gives just an understanding of human nature in the end. Doris Kearns Goodwin, thank you so much for joining us. You are both a national treasure and a national asset. You uh, make a big difference for a lot of us. Thanks for joining us. You are so welcome. Remember, after the story is told, after the principle is presented, after the discussion and debate have been had, the question for all of us is, therefore what? Don't miss an episode. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcast or wherever you're listening today. And be sure to rate this episode and leave us a review. Follow us on uh, Deseret.com slash TW and subscribe to our newsletter. This is Boyd Matheson, opinion editor for the Deseret News. Thanks for engaging with us on... Therefore, what?